You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. In a moment, Pastor Dave is going to bring us our next instalment in our series through Exodus. We've spent the last few months going through this book that tells the story of God's grace and his mercy in bringing his people from slavery into freedom. And I've personally found myself really challenged to trust God all the more with my life in response to what we've been going through. But before we jump in, open up your Bibles to Exodus 25, and there'll also be a video Bible reading on the screen. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take for me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we can gather together today as your people. And Father, we are so thankful that you are a God who speaks. May we not presume upon you for your word, but may we receive it with thanksgiving every time we hear it. And Father, we ask that you give us faith to receive your word as your word and that your Holy Spirit would work among us powerfully right now, illuminating your word, giving us understanding to know what it means, and even giving us the will to put it into practice. And Father, we pray this through Jesus Christ, our risen, ruling, and returning King. And all of God's people said... Amen. Amen. Well, welcome again to City on a Hill this morning. A particular welcome to you if this is your first time with us. We are really glad that you are here. Uh, My name is Dave. It's my honour to serve as the lead pastor of this church. Shout out to those who are tuning in online as well. Uh, And also a shout out to Chris and Em and baby Georgia here for the first time. Let's give them a a quiet (laughs) clap. Not too loud, not too loud. So great to see you guys. And I missed them in the previous service, but Stu and Ellen had baby Quinn with us as well. Uh, new life, uh, much to thank God for uh, in our church family. Hey, uh, before we dig into God's Word, uh, Alana's already mentioned it, but we've got our City Vision Night tonight. And if you haven't yet registered, love to invite you to register Come along. It'll be a a really encouraging night uh, as we hear of all that God has been doing among us with thanksgiving. uh, And as we come before him and pray and ask that he would continue to work powerfully in and through our church, 
Uh, one of the things we're really excited about and keen to talk more about is our night service that we're hoping to launch uh, soon. Uh, and even if you don't feel like night service is something you're going to be part of, uh, I think there's opportunities for all of us to be praying that new people would meet Jesus as a result of a new gospel work uh, Sunday night by Sunday night. And so please do come along, uh, make it a priority to be here. Uh, it will be a fantastic time. Hey, uh, quick show of hands if you are a fan of camping. Okay, about half the room. Uh, put your hands down. Thank you. Uh, quick show of hands if you are not a fan of camping. There we go. Those hands shot up a bit quicker. Uh, some of you may well have had some negative experiences with camping. And here's the thing. Our family camp all the time, but uh, it, I used to hate it. Uh, why did I hate it? Well, because of an infamous hike in the Royal National Park uh, in Sydney South. Uh, Rowena and I were relatively newly married and it was a long walk broken up with a, an overnight sleep in a tent. Uh, the, the walk was pretty good. The weather was reasonable. But as we went to set up the tent, the wind kind of picked up out of nowhere and we were nowhere near roads or any type of safety. And so any visions of a, ro a romantic night gazing upon the stars with the ocean not far away with my bride by my side quickly blew away with the gale force winds. Our tent overnight, like we, we kind of hid out in our tiny little dome temp, uh, tent as soon as we could. And you know how a dome tent is supposed to work? Like it kind of is about this big. Uh, it goes up to about, I don't know, about a, a metre and a bit, metre and a half even, uh, and then kind of slopes down to the side. Well, our domed tent was more of a flat sandwich tent. So rather than a big hamburger shape, it was more of a flatbread focaccia and the wind was flattening the tent and we were kind of inside the tent just thinking, are we about to blow into the ocean? Uh, there's no trees nearby, but we're like, what is about to happen to us? It was a terrible night. I, I remember at one point we barely slept and I thought, this wind is not stopping. Maybe, like, maybe we're about to die. I think I, I think I need to cover Row, and I kind of, kind of awkwardly, kind of leant across her, just thinking, you know what? If we're discovered tomorrow morning, and I'm dead and she's alive, you know what a heroic story that she'll be able to share with the world. Uh, we didn't die, and. Um, <laughs> the next day of walking was pretty long and pretty unheroic. And so uh, that for me, ex that experience of camping uh, meant that it was years before I had an attempt at it again. Uh, as I said, we love camping now, but sometimes those negative experiences of something may well taint your view of something. Not sure what your experiences of camping have been. Now, we'll continue to talk about camping in a moment, but today, as we continue in the book of Exodus, uh, today's sermon is all about the tabernacle, the tabernacle. Now, if you've been around religious circles, Christian circles, read bits of the Bible, you've heard of the tabernacle. Sometimes churches are even named after a tabernacle. Uh, who's heard the word tabernacle before? Show of hands. Most of us have, and maybe you don't even have a religious background. We've heard the word tabernacle. Now, keep your hands up if you are confident at explaining what the word means and the significance of it. Okay, barely any hands. A couple, a, a couple of hands. Come, come on down. Come on down. Those four hands, come, no, you don't need to come on down. There weren't many of us. It's a word we're familiar with, right? But sometimes we probably glance over it and we're not quite 
really confident in what the tabernacle is and was and uh, why it existed and the significance of it. Here's the headline. Tabernacle, the tabernacle is all about camping. Uh, Now, it's a relatively positive experience of camping, but it's an experience of camping where we know and need to understand that in the tabernacle, God is pitching his tent and dwelling among his people. The tabernacle is all about God pitching his tent and dwelling among his people. Uh, Now we're going to consider Exodus chapter 25, 26 and 27. Uh, It's part of a broader section that we're kind of covering this week and we don't have time to read all the verses in the section. But as we begin here in Exodus chapter 25, keep your Bibles out, keep your Bibles open, we're going to consider three places where God tabernacles. Three places where God pitches his tent. And we're going to consider the significance of each of these places where God dwells. Who's ready for the first one? Come on, 8.30 was more awake than that. Who's ready for the first one? There we go. I like that. I like that. Number one, the first place where God pitches his tent. Number one, God dwelling in Israel. Number one, God dwelling in Israel. You know, the tabernacle uh, is all about God graciously choosing to dwell among his people, the people of Israel. And so to, to tabernacle is to pitch your tent. And isn't it remarkable that God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, would choose graciously, willingly, to pitch his tent and dwell among the people of Israel. You know, Exodus chapter 25 uh, begins with an invitation. We've had the first nine verses read out for us, and it's an invitation to the people of Israel to contribute to the building of the tabernacle. Uh, Verse 8 really is is the big idea. Uh, Verse 8 is the key verse we're even going to look at in all of these chapters of the book of Exodus. Uh, So keep your Bibles out, keep them open. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, it says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is massive. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The the people of God will build a sanctuary for the Lord. What's a sanctuary? A a sanctuary is a holy place, a sacred space. Maybe maybe you have a sanctuary within your home, kind of a place where you kind of hide out, a place that's peaceful. Uh, Maybe you have a place that you go to that you can kind of, uh, it's a sacred space for you personally. Well, the Lord wants his people to build this sacred space, this holy place for him. Why? Well, the verse continues, that I, there's the purpose, that I may dwell in their midst. The Lord is going to pitch his tent in the midst of Israel. Now, this is really good news for Israel, is it not? There was nothing particularly impressive about this nation. 
actually like all people who'd come before them and have come after them, Israel as a people group had sinned against God. They failed to give the God who gives life and breath and everything to them. They failed to worship Him. They failed to honour Him. They failed to love Him. And yet, generations before this moment in Exodus chapter 25, God graciously bestowed His affections upon them. Remember, in Genesis chapter 12, we meet Abraham or Abram, whose name changes to Abraham. And God promises to Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through his descendants, that they themselves will be God's special chosen people. And God promises to Abraham these wonderful things for his descendants. And the rest of the book of Genesis is effectively meeting the descendants of Abraham. We see Isaac, we see Jacob, we see the 12 tribes. And and we see by the end of the book of Genesis, the way in which God has been faithfully keeping the promises he made to Abraham. The people are populous. And by the start of the book of Exodus, the one we've been in for a few months, uh, the people are flourishing. Now, it's a big deal that the people are flourishing. They're still multiplying. They're actually doing quite well, though they are enslaved in Egypt. And though they used to live in Egypt under a kinder Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is harsh and becomes harsher the more he sees the people of God flourishing. And yet God in His grace and mercy, as we've seen throughout this series, hears the cry of His oppressed people. He sees them in their time of need and He promises that He will come down to rescue them. He promises to enable them to exit, to leave Egypt. The exodus will take place. And we we see the mighty and outstretched arm of the Lord Rescue them mightily. And yet we've even seen glimpses all along the way in recent weeks that they actually continue to rebel. Immediately after they're rescued, they grumble. Oh, Moses, why did you take us out of here? We'd rather be back in Egypt. We'd rather be enslaved in Egypt. And yet God continues to be gracious and kind to them. And even here by chapter 25, God is still willing to dwell with his people. Not only is he their creator, but he is their redeemer who has come near and he will make his dwelling among them. Uh, Now, those of you who are regularly part of City on the Hill, you know that our, our normal practice and even my normal practice is to have a crack at kind of the text that's in front of us and maybe kind of break it up into sections. We've got too many chapters to even try to do that. And so what I want to do is even more of a helicopter view uh, that actually depends upon you uh, focusing in, both as we follow along, and I won't have a chance to read all the verses, but even afterwards, uh, there's a lot of detail and the detail uh, is important. Uh, And so to, I guess, summarise the things that we read about, in particular in chapter 25, 26 and 27, as we catch a glimpse of the tabernacle, uh, we've got a diagram that'll pop up on the screen. There it is. Uh, And effectively, uh, as you look up at that diagram, uh, we're going to kind of see these things explained in Exodus 25 to 31 uh, is effectively where God's people are told to set these things up. And then we actually see the fulfillment in chapters 35 to 40 as those things are done in obedience to God's word. Uh, And so what we'll do in particular, we'll focus on 25, 26 and 27 
is we're going to walk through the headings. Now, um, the headings aren't even part of the Bible. The ESV put the headings there uh, to kind of help us track along. Uh, and I think the, the headings are actually helpful just to kind of quickly move and we'll keep the diagram up on the screen. And so hopefully you can visually get an idea of what's going on here. But again, uh, this isn't a supplement to actually slowing down and reading the text. Let me urge you, let me encourage you to do that. Uh, now, as we walk through uh, briskly uh, or helicopter over the top of these chapters, uh, I've benefited greatly from Tony Morita's commentary. Tony Morita is uh, a friend of City on a Hill. He's an Acts 29 church planter in North Carolina in the United States, a uh, remarkable gospel-centered uh, um, man, uh, a really thoughtful thinker, and I've personally loved his commentary on the book of Exodus. It's called Exalting Christ in Exodus, uh, which is part of the Christ-centered exposition series. You can pick it up for a couple of bucks on Kindle, um, uh, some e-books, uh, and very, very very much recommend it. And so uh, even as I, uh, I don't have any direct quotes uh, of Tony Morita's in the, in the next, uh, I guess, uh, five to 10 minutes, um, but have very much been shaped by his understanding of these three chapters. And so consider that a footnote and uh, don't accuse me of plagiarism. Um, but one of the things that, uh, that Tony emphasizes here in each of these elements, as we unpack them briefly in a moment, is we can see how meticulously God has prepared for his presence to be manifested among his people. You'll notice that even as we scan over the verses and all the more so as you slow down and read them in your own time. So heading number one after our introduction, uh, uh, beginning at verse 10 there, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. You can see the Ark of the Covenant. Here's the, the label. Here it is inside the most holy place. We've got the two rails. Uh, we've got the box that's there. Uh, you'd obviously need to zoom in to see it in more detail. Um, but this is a big deal, the Ark of the Covenant. This is the place within which God would meet with and speak to Moses. And one of the things you notice, even as you scan your eyes from chapter 25, verse 10, down to verse 22, is the amount of gold that's there. There's a, there's a real majesty and king-like. Gold is on repeat throughout these verses. This is the presence of the majestic God, symbolically here in a beautiful box. But the other thing we see about God's presence here in the Ark of the Covenant as we focus in, particularly in the second paragraph in that section, uh, is that God is not only majestic, but God is merciful. There's a mercy seat that's on the top of the Ark of the Covenant. The mercy seat is a reminder of the mercy of God, a reminder that God has Already up until this point in Israel's story, shown them mercy and that God will continue to show them his mercy as he dwells among his people. The Ark of the Covenant, we see that God's presence is majestic and merciful. Next heading, we are moving quickly. The table for bread, beginning at verse 23 down to the end of verse 30. This is a reminder of God's presence through provision. We've already seen God provide for his people, have we not? And the table and the details of the, of the table, as you can see them in the holy place up against that wall. The, the, the table's important, but what it held 
was far more important. This is the God who already has provided for his people what they need, manna from heaven in the wilderness and will continue to provide what they need. Even as the priests enter into the holy place and as they eat the bread, there was a daily reminder that God is provider, that God provides even their daily bread. The third thing we see uh, is the golden lampstands. That's from verse 31 to the end of chapter 25. The golden lampstand helps us to see that God's presence is present through light. Now, light in the Old Testament is a big symbol. Uh, God is light. Uh, Light is symbolic of God's presence. Light is symbolic of God's holiness. God, we've already seen it, have we not, is the one who has been the light of his people as they've travelled through the wilderness. He he has led them by day. He has led them by night. God was the light of Israel. And remember, Israel were were meant to be a light to the nations. There's those who follow after the light, God, the true and living God. They were to be a light to the nations around that people would see that God lives here. The true God lives here. The living God lives here. They were to shine brightly for this God and for His glory golden lampstand, God's presence is through his light. Now the next section, next heading is the tabernacle. This is big. The whole of chapter 26 is all about the tabernacle. In particular, the whole thing is about the tabernacle, but in particular, this is about the tabernacle structure. And kind of in all of the details of the structure, we learn that God is present among his people. You know, as you scan your eyes over and you see the frames that are in place, you see the curtains that are in place, you see the veils uh, that are in place, there's a reminder there with the curtains that not everyone has access to God in an unlimited way in and through this time. You see, the curtains uh, kept people out of the most holy place, kept people out of the holy place, and even the, the whole structures... Uh, means that access to God is limited. Now, it's not just that the curtains keep people out, but the curtains protect people from God's presence, right? there's, There's a danger in having this God, this holy God living in your midst, living in the midst of your camp, him making a tent. And so the curtains not only keep the people out, but protect the people from God's holy presence. God desires relationship with Israel, but they're sinners. And so how do they draw near? How is it possible to penetrate in deeper into those structures? Well, we move to the fifth thing. Heading number five, the beginning of chapter 27 is the bronze altar. Entrance into God's presence is only possible through a sacrifice. Sinners can come into the presence of God through a sacrifice. You know, as a worshipper would walk into that outer court, what is the first thing that they see in the entrance up the top of the screen there? The first thing that they would see is the altar. The altar is a reminder that there is a chasm between God and between people. 
but that people can approach God through the use of that altar. People can approach God through blood. You know, we've had blood on repeat in this series. Uh, blood has been a, a significant thing in the book of Exodus. We, we've already seen in the, in the early plagues, the, the river Nile turned to blood. And then we've seen in the 10th and the final plague against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, we've got the plague of the firstborn. And you'd remember that on that night, God's people were spared. How were they spared? Because they had taken a lamb without blemish that was sacrificed on their behalf. The blood was sprinkled upon the door frames of their homes, that all in those homes, and in particular the firstborns in those homes, were passed over that night that judgment came against Egypt. They were spared because of the sacrifice of blood. And then last week we saw in the confirmation of the covenant, the the confirmation of the relationship between God and his people, even even blood is used there and then. In the confirmation of the relationship, blood is spilt, but blood is sprinkled over the people. And then ongoingly, and we'll, we'll catch a glimpse more of this next week as we meet the priests, we'll see this as the Old Testament continues to roll on. In particular, the book of Leviticus is effectively the book of blood. Blood will be ongoingly necessary in the life of Israel because forgiveness, as we saw last week, is possible only through the blood that is shed on our behalf. The sixth heading there is the court of the tabernacles. We're in chapter 27, verse 9 uh, to verse 19. Uh, And this, I guess, is a, a glimpse of God's presence is guarded. What does that mean? Well, God does dwell in the midst of his people, but the outer tent in the courtyard is a reminder that God is still other that God is still separate, that God is still holy, that God is still to be revered. He's not just another mate pulling up a swag next to you by the billabong. This is the creator God of the universe. And as we will see next week, as we consider uh, the chapters on the priests, that people need to come to God how he has invited us. We need to come via the priest. We need to come via sacrificial systems. We need to come via the appropriate protocol for standing in the presence of the God who gives life and breath and everything. The final heading there at the end of chapter 27 is oil for the lamp. You know, the priests are charged with collecting oil for the lamps, the best possible oil you can see. Uh, and it was for the lampstand. Again, you can see the lampstand in the holy place. And the, lamp, the, the flame upon the lampstand was to continuously burn as a result of that oil. Again, a, a wonderful picture that God's presence never goes out. God's presence is constantly with his people. Even in the darkness, the darkness of night, the darkness of sin and rejection, God's light would still shine brightly in the midst of the people of Israel. Now that, that was a, a, a 10 minute summary of a, a massive section that would have taken a lot longer to read in details. And, and perhaps even as you do the overview, you're like, ah, oh, this is a little bit tedious. <laughs> Come on, be honest. Some of you are thinking that as we read that. And yet it is worth considering the detail that goes into this. 
because it is worth considering and beholding and be so thankful that God goes to great lengths to show that he was willing to tabernacle and to dwell among his people. You know, we go, we go to great lengths when it comes to housing, do we not? Come on. You've just done a renovation. You've gone into way more detail than this goes into. You've built your first home. You know, we, we go into all sorts of great lengths to get the dwelling place right. It is right and appropriate, therefore, is it not? That God, choosing graciously to pitch his tent in the midst of his people, would go to such great detail. How kind and gracious and merciful is the God of Israel. Number one of the three places where God pitches his tent, God dwells in Israel. Now, before we jump to ourselves and kind of go, well, what does this mean for us? It's important that we stop and we see what this whole series has been doing week after week. Before we even think about ourselves, we need to see the whopping big arrow that's in chapter after chapter of the book of Exodus. That arrow is pointing forward with precision to Jesus. You see, the the second place where God pitches his tent, number two, is God dwelling in Christ. God dwelling in Christ. I'm going to turn, and if you've got a Bible, turn there with me. Uh, Most of these verses will come up on the screen as well, though. But John chapter 1, and we get a wonderful picture of God dwelling in Christ. Now, in John chapter 1, we're introduced in the opening verse to the Word. Uh, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, This is an eternal Word, an eternal Logos, through whom all things were made. This, this word is also described as the light of the world, already starting to see parallels with all that we've seen in the tabernacle. But have a look with me at John chapter 1, verse 14. After we've been introduced to the word, as we know, hey, this is clearly talking about Jesus. Look at what it says in verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us is literally tabernacled among us. It's the exact same idea that we've just had in the book of Exodus. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. In Jesus, we meet the word became flesh. In Jesus, we meet God who has come among us. As we see the Son, we see the Father. As we see Jesus, the Word who became flesh, we see the glory of the eternal God, full of grace, full of truth. You know, this, this could pivot into a Christmas sermon at this point. You know, I've, I've long made the argument that we ought to sing Christmas carols all year round. Ought we not? We don't just sing about the death and resurrection of Jesus at Easter as Christians, right? We sing about it all the time. We ought not just sing about the glory of the incarnation, God becoming a man just in the month of December. Isn't it remarkable that God became a man? The Creator took on flesh. 
the everlasting God who has no beginning and no end, the eternal God, the eternal word that has already existed, who was there in the beginning and who was there before the beginning because he has no beginning, because he has no end, this God takes on flesh. The creator steps into his creation. Is that not remarkable? It is remarkable to read Exodus chapter 25 all the way to the end of Exodus chapter 40, which we'll do in the coming weeks. It is remarkable to see the detail with which God has meticulously planned it to enter into uh, the, the camp and dwell with Israel. But how remarkable... That the, that the God who flung stars into space, who speaks creation into existence, the one who has the whole world in his hands, enters into the world as a babe, clings to his mother's breast, vulnerable and helpless. In Jesus, God is dwelling among us. God is going to great lengths to rescue people, to dwell with people, that we can dwell with him. The word became flesh. In Jesus, we meet God, the God who dwells in all of his fullness, Colossians 2.9 says, in bodily form. All the deity dwelled bodily in him. You know, in recent weeks, and I'm sure in weeks to come, we've turned to the book of Hebrews to continue to unpack some of the parallels between Exodus and the fulfillment in Christ. And we could easily do that today. We've, we've seen many times of what Christ has done. We've seen his blood that was shed. We've seen the way that he has enabled us to make our way, not just into the holy place, but the most holy of holies through his blood that was shed upon the cross. We've looked at that week after week. Uh, and I've kind of said we're not going to do it today, but I've kind of just done it in the last 20 seconds by giving a slight hint at it. But I want to take you to another place. I want to take you to Ephesians uh, and I'll get you to turn there with me, uh, and we'll close out in Ephesians. Uh, and in Ephesians, we see the Apostle Paul, and we see once again the remarkable work of what this one, Jesus, who is God dwelling in Christ, God dwelling in him, will see his work on our behalf. Now, Paul is writing uh, to... Um, uh, to Christians uh, in Ephesus. Uh, many of his audience are um, Gentile Christians, that is, those who weren't Jewish by birth. Uh, but there are some in his audience who are Jewish, uh, who were part of the people of God in, under the old covenant. And there's still, there's still like tension in the ancient world between Jewish believer and Gentile believer. And he comes with this remarkable message to Jew and to Gentile, to all who would hear this message. Pick it up with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You know, on that diagram we had up there before, there's, there's, there's people who are far off. Now, there's some people who are a bit closer, 
who are just outside the courtyard, who are amongst Israel. But there are people in nations far off from that whole tabernacle system that was set up in the book of Exodus. You see, what, you, see, you see the good news that comes in Jesus? Those of you who are a little bit off, those of you who are ridiculously far off, you can be brought near through the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he, Jesus himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made two one. He's made two warring parties. Jew and Gentile can now be one new people. A dividing wall of hostility, verse 14, has been broken down. He's obliterated it. Verse 15, how? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He's kind of done away. With all of that Old Testament sacrificial system, you no longer need to sacrifice bull after bull, lamb after lamb, dove after dove in order to try and come a little bit closer to God. Jesus has broken that down. He's obliterated that dividing wall of hostility, enabling two people to become one new humanity. So verse 15, making peace. And verse 16, might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing their hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Isn't that remarkable? It's a big deal that Jew and Gentile, warring tribes can actually be united together as a new people. There's many examples we could think of in our world today uh, of, of warring parties The gospel hope is warring parties can come together as one new humanity. And and together as one new humanity can have not only peace with each other, but peace with God. The curtain of the temple when Jesus breathed out his last was torn in two, not in the tabernacle, in the temple, which is a bigger version of the same thing. Through Jesus' death, through Jesus' blood, sacrifice, The dividing wall of hostility between people is divided and the dividing wall of hostility between us and God is divided. The curtain has been torn down. Access has been granted. We can enter in, not just to the holy holy place, but to the most holy place through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Have you heard and, and seen what is offered through Christ? God is dwelling in him and then God is acting going to great lengths to make it possible for him to dwell with us and for us to dwell with him. You know what, today there's some of you here who are not at peace with your neighbours. Might be people seated in this room. There might be people outside of this room. And there's also people here today who aren't at peace with God. Take very seriously the peace that Jesus offers. Jesus offers to break down that dividing wall of hostility remarkably between people and all the more remarkably between us and God. If you're not a follower of Jesus, we're really glad that you're here. We hope and trust every week is a week where you get to see something of the hope that is ours in Jesus, something of the good news of why Jesus came to live for us, to die for us and to be raised again. And Jesus is offering to you today peace, peace with God. God has gone to great lengths to come near that you could draw near, that you could find peace, that you could find forgiveness, that you could find reconciliation. Look, if you're 
not yet a follower of Jesus and you want to draw near to him, we'd urge you to speak to the people that have brought you along or continue to bring you along to church. Come and speak to me. Come and speak to our team at the info desk. We'd love to help you to take hold of what Jesus is offering uh, through his blood shed on the cross. We began with the question of where does God tabernacle? Where are the places that God dwells? Number one, we saw how God is dwelling in Israel. Number two, we saw how God is dwelling in Christ. How wonderful that news is for all of us. The third and most briefly, we see God dwelling in us. It is incredible that God would dwell in us. Incredible promises. Remarkable hope. How does God dwell in us? God dwells in us by his Holy Spirit. Earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, it says that um, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, you were marked with the promised Holy Spirit. Christian, brother, sister, God's spirit dwells in you. Uh, You may have heard it said that you need to wait for some subsequent baptism in the Holy Spirit. No, you don't need to wait for some subsequent baptism in the Holy Spirit. If If you have union with Christ, if your trust is in him, you've got the Holy Spirit. There's no second-class Christians. We're all Christians together. We've all got the one Spirit. This one Lord dwells within us. Look at these stunning words to close out Ephesians chapter 2 from verse 18. It says, For through him, uh, Jesus, we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. How cool is that? Verse 22. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For those in Christ, for those who have union with him, we have access to the one Father through trusting in the one Son and we are dwelt in by the one Spirit, the one God, our God, the Holy Trinity, triunity, one God. There is only one God, but there are three persons in the Godhead. And verse 22 is stunning, is it not? We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The church, the people of God in this room, the people of God in this city, the people of God on the planet, we are together being built together as the household of God, sharing in common the one Holy Spirit. God has taken up residence in your heart in your life, in this Christian community. Isn't that stunning? It is remarkable that God would dwell in the midst of Israel. It is remarkable that God would dwell in Christ and win all the benefits that are ours through him who lived and died and was raised again. But isn't it incredible that God dwells in each of us? You are not alone. God knows what you're going through. God is at work in and through the mess of this life to build you stronger in him. And you know, God has made a a home in us. And I think as we 
consider that God has made a home in us, that reshapes even how we think about the whole notion of home. Have you ever felt like you don't fit in, that you don't belong? You know, sometimes even though we may have lived in the same house or city for perhaps many years, we can feel restless and not at home. I love uh, what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. He said, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world, uh, no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. We were made to dwell somewhere else with God dwelling in us and us dwelling with him for eternity. As I invite the band out the front, uh, I used to live um, with my family uh, in, I think, one of the most beautiful places on the planet, uh, Sydney's Northern Beaches. And I remember uh, every time we'd leave the beaches, just how alluring the drive home was. Uh, I remember driving through the nearby inland suburb of Terry Hills just before we began the drive back down the hill to the ocean. And there was this point, this incredible vantage point where for the first time you could see the expanse of the sea. And I remember the whole time that I lived there, I made a habit of repeating the line as I saw the horizon, as I saw the expanse of the sea. Dave, this is not your home. Dave, this is not your home. Dave, this is not your home. Now, I had little kids at the time and they were probably pretty confused because we were on our way home. And yet their daddy's saying, this is not your home. But here's the reality. This life is not our home. We are only here temporarily. Our home is with God and he has gone to great lengths to make a home with Israel, to make a home in and through Christ and to dwell in us even now by his spirit as he continues to build us together as a holy temple. You know, eternity will all be all about being at home with God, seeing his glory, being in his presence, all because of what Christ has accomplished for us. Sidney Hill, would you stand? as we pray together. Father, we want to thank you and praise you for the meticulous details of the book of Exodus. Uh, If we're honest, we uh, sometimes might um, find them tedious, but would you cause us to, to not think like that and help us to see just how incredible it is the detail that you would go to to make it possible that you could dwell among people and and help us to see how incredible it is that in Christ, we, we meet you in Christ who is our life, who is our peace, who lived for us, who died for us, who was raised again, whose blood makes the way open. And Father, I I struggle to even understand what it means to constantly have you dwelling in me, but I'm glad we are, we are so thankful for your presence. We're so thankful for the building that you're at work to continue to build. Help us to be part of that work as we submit ourselves to Christ, as we submit ourselves to your Spirit, as we work hard to be a community that loves deeply, as we work hard to be a people of peace, as we work hard to shine brightly for the glory of our King. And Father, we are, we are, we are, we are longing <laughs> Behold your face. We, we know that you already reside in us. 
we cannot wait when we will behold your glory for the rest of eternity. Lord, would you speed that day? And would every day while we wait and every day while we're restless be an opportunity to hope all the more for the home that is ours through you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We pray this boldly and confidently. And all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.